we are cutting out all sugars and carbohydrates out of mm -hmm. the diet. These animals are showing improved recovery of function. Welcome to Connecting the Resilient. This is your host, Andrew Mangan. I suffered a spinal cord injury in December 2016 and started Connecting the Resilient to share stories of survivors who've been through the injury. Every week I interview people from the spinal cord injury community, from doctors to foundation leaders to therapists on their recommendations for getting through the injury and hearing what they have to say about how the spinal cord injury community has evolved and what new research and opportunities are out there. I really hope you enjoy the podcast, and for more information, please visit our website at www.connectingtheresilient.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Hi, this is your host, Andrew Mangan, for our seventh episode of Connecting the Resilient. I'm speaking with the director of i Dr. Wolfram Tetzlov. Dr. Tetzlov offers some very fascinating um, insight into the spinal cord injury community, along with some really interesting research he's doing with uh, rodents on the effects of diet and recovery of um, at least cervical injuries. I hope you enjoy, and now the podcast. I'm here with Dr. Wolfram Tetzloff from iCord. Dr. Tetzloff, thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. And could you talk a little bit about your history in the spinal cord injury community? Uh, you're, the, you're the director of iCord now, but what what kind of led you to that point? What got you involved in the community at first? And to be quite honest, it's a very long story. It's actually a very personal story. I grew up with a father who had a nerve injury and had a paralyzed hand. And this was fascinating me. And when I grew up, I wanted to go to medical school, become a doctor. And then I realized that would not allow me to do anything about that nerve injury and it would not, in those days, do anything about more severe injuries of the spinal cord. So that was in the late 70s when I graduated from medical school. And we knew very little. We could describe what happened, but we could really not do much for the patients. And it was very frustrating. And uh, that drifted, made me drift more and more into the, to the research laboratories. I started working in an anatomy lab in those days and did initially regeneration experiments in aesthetic nerves of chicken. <laughs> that was also in the 70s and became more and more interested in nerve regeneration problems. Trained then in Germany at the Max Planck Institute trying to understand how nerve cells respond to injury. And of course the holy grail in neuroregeneration work is and still has remained the injured spinal cord. And therefore I adopted more and more these injury models that allowed us to ask questions. How does a spinal cord injury affect cells? How, why do the nerve fibers not grow? Why are the injuries going bigger after and there has been an impact to the cord? And this is how I 
but more into spinal cord injury. And in between, I transitioned to Canada initially as a trainee who has to spend some time in an English-speaking country mm-hmm. to brush up mm-hmm. on the English. You can tell by my <laughs> accent, I'm not English, I'm ESL. And, and is that when you got involved with i Oh, no, i did not exist yet. I did my PhD in Calgary in 89. i did not exist until 2002, and i started out of court, the international comes later, and, and court stood for collaboration on repair discoveries. And what mm-hmm. that meant was it started here in Vancouver with Rick Hansen, who many people may know in the public, starting his world tour in 85 till 87 and raised $26 million for spinal cord injury research as well as awareness for people that live with a disability. And he came back with all those millions and the university president in those days, Strangway was, of course, thinking together with others what can we do in the most effective way with the money? And uh, the wise decision was to start a research center. And it started as a virtual center out of zoology, because in zoology, there was a researcher by the name Dr. John Steves, who was studying locomotion control in birds and animals. And of course, if you want to understand the broken spinal cord, and locomotion control is certainly one of those basic science disciplines that lends Mm -hmm. itself to understanding of the problems. So in 95, uh, there was the virtual center court uh, created with participation from several departments and members across the university itself, but also across the lower mainland, even Victoria. And that small group initially that was called CORD was in 2002 then renamed to ICORD because we felt we should be more inclusive as international and we should have lots of collaborations going on with other similar-minded laboratories and researchers. And with the vision of Dr. Steves, we applied for a grant to the Canadian Foundation for Innovation and we received the money to build this physical center, which then later was named the Bluffen Spinal Cord Center, because in those days, unfortunately, we didn't get the matches and, uh, as quickly as we wanted. The building's cost exploded, and we were very, very fortunate that Marilyn and Stuart Blossom were donating a significant amount of money uh, it was $10 million in those days towards the completion of the building, and hence ICOT was able to move with many of their researchers into one building with a vision that now clinicians as well as engineers that work on prevention as well as rehabilitation scientists that do rehabilitation research, biological scientists like myself that work on problems of regeneration as well as neuroprotection are in one building under one roof and being able to collaborate and also to learn from each other what the problems are. And our clinicians have spent the entire spectrum from the typical 
complications after spinal cord injury, like inability of bladder control, bowel control, some work on the blood pressure control, and mm-hmm. there are many, many problems people don't see when you live with spinal cord injury. What people see is the paralysis, but it's really way more than that. And in some people, it's pain, which is in the foreground. In other people, of course, it's what they suffer most from is a loss of sexual function. It depends really what you what you cannot do and what age you are and what gender you are and how you would describe how it impacts you most. Spinal cord injury is one of the most widest faceted uh, disorders and, and the conditions that a person can have, and sometimes it could, can be very, very severe. Sometimes you can live a very active life with it. It's very different for different people in the different stages of the uh, uh, injury phase. It presents itself also quite differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's 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 quite a story. And um, you talk you talked a little bit about iCord. Um, could you talk uh, kind of about some of the some of the ultimate goals of iCord? Is it mainly of to our vision is to make iCord uh, to make spinal cord injury not only preventable and livable, meaning to treat the complications of spinal cord injury as effective as possible, but also ideally curable, meaning to very much mitigate the impact from injury and the outcome, to improve the outcome from that, and hopefully even to regenerate the impaired cord to some extent that gives the person independence and improved quality of life. I'm not as naive to think that we make a person play the piano again when there's a cervical spinal cord injury which essentially leads to full paralysis mm-hmm. of the hands. Mm-hmm. But I have the strong hope, that, and this is what really matters for most people, that they get the independence and the ability to look after themselves, to drive a car, to, uh, to groom themselves, to feed themselves, to do all these activity of daily living uh, uh, things that allow them to have an independent and even a professionally meaningful lifestyle. And that uh, it does not necessarily mean that you gain the full function back. That would be somewhat too naive to assume, but it will mean that, as I said, that the, the suffering is taken away if it's pain, if it's, if it's those type of uh, conditions, and if it gives them the a meaningful, fulfilled life, including a, yeah, a profession. Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. That's, that's not not everybody has that blessing, and some people are becoming very independent, and others are not. And it really depends on the level and severity and ability. Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, of course. And, yeah, I think um, a lot of kind of you. you yeah, I think a lot of about how a lot of the effects of the injury are not just the paralysis and what seen from the outside, but also like the effects of blood pressure regulation and going to the bathroom and sexual function. Could you talk a little bit about some of the research projects that you are kind of running and overseeing at iCord? Kind of running and overseeing at iCord? Absolutely. I'm extremely fortunate to have 
a group of highly talented scientists here in the building, basic scientists as well as clinician researchers. And I'm extremely proud, for instance, of my cardiovascular researcher team. This is just one group mm -hmm. to mention at this in the beginning, mm -hmm. who are looking at the ways to control blood pressure. And you may know that some people suffer from a condition called autonomic mm -hmm. dysreflexia, which means that mm -hmm. a little ingrowing toenail, some little uh, pressure, uh, some uh, things they're not aware of in the lower extremities can give them, even a full bladder for instance, can give them spurts and episodes of high blood pressure that could be life-threatening. And my colleague, Dr. Andrei Krasyukov, has very much been, has been able to raise awareness for this, to come up with some decent treatment modalities and is able to uh, now make other doctors in the community, North America and worldwide, essentially familiar with this type of condition, which about 10, 15 years ago, hardly anybody were aware of. And that, of course, means a significant improvement of the clinical care for people that happen to have these autonomic dysreflexias. Another situation where he has made a great contribution was to look at the uh, low blood pressure condition, which is also happening in many people, they just cannot get in the morning up their blood pressure and it's in, and they feel like, yeah, forgive me the word, like zombies almost. And again, the low blood pressure when it is going on long term is becoming threatening for to brain health. It predisposes us even for some dementia-like condition. And in that situation, uh, coming up with treatment uh, modalities, again, uh, is, is absolutely vital to, aid, to make people aware of it and then treat it effectively. And again, every per person responds slightly differently. And he has done outstanding work in the, along those directions, which is actually interesting is he has also developed standards for athletes and how athletes with disabilities should compete and and how they should not use their autonomous reflexia, for instance, to boost up their blood pressure and thereby uh, increase their performance, which, of course, could be abused in a way that gives an athlete a conditional edge, which is somewhat unfair. Yeah. So in other words, they pinch themselves <laughs> and, yeah. and, and increase their blood pressure. But of course, you don't want that because there is a fine line being between boosting yourself and then getting dangerously high. And it, it, this in itself is, is, of course, somewhat amusing sounding, but it's a, it's a worrisome reality out there in the, in the sports field. Um, another colleague of mine just today had a big media attention on the fact that cardiac function is impaired early after injury. We, we know way too little about these type of things because it would also point to the fact and the question, can we prevent this with exercises? Is something where exercise is coming in? Because we do see increasingly uh, through our own a facility which we provide here in ICOT for people with spinal cord injury or other in, uh, conditions of the injured spinal cord, even including multiple sclerosis, 
that people mm -hmm. benefit a lot from exercising, be it passive flag cycling and other uh, activities, because they have a, a percussion on their blood pressure control. Also, some people say their bowel control is improving, even to the extent that some seem to report that the bladder control is somehow affected. I would think those things need to be confirmed in controlled studies, as these are often anecdotal uh, reports, but it's important to understand that exercise indeed seem to be, like the able-bodied population, of great benefit. And mm -hmm. it's not it's not different. Why would they be different? The only big difference yeah. is, and this is what people don't talk about enough, is that the population in the wheelchair is oftentimes forced to be sessile. By definition, they're often paralyzed, and therefore they are more threatened, like any couch potato population, the able-bodied population, they are uh, more, more likely to develop cardiovascular disease. And yeah. people don't talk about it enough that, yes, indeed, what can we know at the moment is probably exercise and most likely a healthy diet, which we can, of course, implement, but many people are either not having the money or the time or the, it's difficult for them to do practically to actually live this lifestyle. One thing we have uh, uh, been able to provide is this gym for these people with spinal cord injury who want to come out to our facility and exercise and and also meet other people, which is very nice for them to be able to exchange their experiences and to actually learn from each other. And it's, it's extremely valuable because spinal cord injury, as I said before, is highly variable between people. Every injury is different. And giving these people the opportunity to talk to each other and exchange experiences and what works for one may not work for the other, but makes, may work for the third person is extremely valuable. It's psychologically valuable. It's of practical value. And uh, I, I feel... This, this Jimmy has provided an, an extremely good opportunity and it provided our scientists with an opportunity to approach uh, people who live with spinal cord injury about participation in studies and to find out when, these, uh, when new treatments options become available, in particular along the, uh, the chronic uh, timeline, to participate in these studies and see how can we improve our condition, how can we make things better. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was at uh, um, the Canadian SCI um, Rehabilitation Association conference a couple weeks ago, and there, uh, I think um, Dr. Chris West, I think he... Um, possibly out at iCord, and he was talking about the the implant they're working on that that has showed to Im improve the um, uh, the sympathetic nervous system, uh, which which controls the uh, blood pressure regulation. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the new direction, and it will uh, probably in the next couple of years lead to more and more studies along the line of how can we stimulate the spinal cord in a way that if there is something left behind, if there is something spared by the original injury, that this, what is spared, can be turned into some useful, functionally active 
spinal cord and regaining some basic functions. This is only applicable to people who have something spared, but it could be as easy as having stimulation through the skin. And there is now evidence from some laboratory that transcutaneous through the skin stimulation improves in some people uh, the general cardiovascular control. That's right. Some In some people, it may be necessary to stimulate with an electrode array that is moved just on top of the spinal cord into that space, which is called the liquor space between the bone of the spinal bony canal and the spinal cord itself. And that could provide, indeed, for some people, uh, the facility or help with the facilitation of stepping or the facilitation of other function, blood or bowel, uh, cardiovascular control or and pain. So there are many, many, many modalities that may be affected. We're just beginning. This is a very recent uh, field. We are just beginning to see these studies uh, being implemented and the uh, episodes uh, are at the moment based on oftentimes one, two, three, four, five individuals only, but it tells us it is in principle possible for some people, and it may make for some people a huge difference, and maybe not for others, in particular when you're completely injured, it will probably not so much. And mm-hmm. this is something where we have to work and we have to decide who is responding to a transcutaneous stimulation, who was responding to an epidural stimulation and sort through this and then find out what is working best for what condition. And I can see this becoming in, in, in several years a uh, something that could be paid for and could be offered to patients. And I have great, great hopes there. And this is where actually rehabilitation in the last years seemed to get a great boost from that direction. And to combine this then with stepping training or other activities, I think is is a, a great, great opportunity and uh, must not be missed and will not be missed. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, kind of building off of that, you talked a little bit how you've seen uh, this change specifically um, over the years. What what kind of other changes uh, would you say you, you've been um, in tune with the spinal cord injury community for a while um, since the 70s? And, and what have kind of the biggest changes you've seen in the spinal cord injury rehabilitation been? Well, um, it's not even rehabilitation. When you, when you start in the 70s and now, I think we have seen wonderful improvements, A, to keep people alive after injury to stabilize them. The surgeons and the intensivists have done a fantastic job in the primary acute care of the freshly injured people. And mm-hmm. that has been really something which made a big difference. Uh, the, the, the general medical um, uh, service for the people and treatment. Yeah. The uh, increasing awareness that Things that may sound simple, as simple as blood pressure control, have now become clearly recognized. And my colleague, Dr. Brian Kwon, who is a clinician scientist, orthopedic surgeon, outstanding person, by the way, who is doing wonderful work to understand what is the actual role of the swelling of the spinal cord, how does it impact blood perfusion, 
of the spinal cord and is this blood supply at the injury site compromising the spinal cord injury site which mm -hmm. then leads to further damage in the acute wake of injury. So this is very important and the, the, the treatment standards have really improved in the clinic and there is more work to be done and, and he's working along that line. He's also working on the line to understand the severity of an injury. Um, I have to explain something here for the lay audience that if you bruise a spinal cord and you create essentially a lesion, there is tissue which is dying immediately at the center of the lesion. But then in the surrounding of that, there is this general uh, um, zone where there is partial preservation of tissue and tends to expand after injury and there comes inflammation and this triggers secondary damage. And this secondary damage leads to further functional losses, which are oftentimes masked because there is some spinal shock and we don't really know exactly what it is. And it makes it very difficult if you want to prevent these with some specific medication to treat a person and say, oh, the person got better because, because at the same time, the person is in spinal shock, at the same time, the person is on a natural recovery curve of spontaneous recovery. So to say that a certain treatment is effective or not effective would require that we know at that early stage how severe the person has been injured. But functionally speaking, we cannot really do that with great precision. And yeah. Dr. Kwon is, is developing ways to look to get a peek into the actual surrounding tissue and the fluid around the spinal cord to see how many uh, molecules that are, are leaking out of an injured cord in order to be able to assess how severely this spinal cord has been injured in order to classify people in different injury severities that allows them to predict, oh, this kind of pattern would spontaneously recover this way, this type of injury severity would recover to this level, and mm -hmm. when we now treat, we have a better baseline to assess uh, whether our treatment is effective. Because uh, people may not know, despite trials for over 18 years, people are now running human trials with drugs that are meant to protect the injured spinal cord after injury and prevent secondary damage, they have not worked. And in part because the population has been enrolled as rather heterogeneous, in part because we have not been able to assess severity very precisely, and the treatments effect were drowned in the noise. And it's very frustrating and at the same time telling us that this is a real challenging problem and in part could be overcome with better imaging, better assessment of the uh, markers of injury severity, and of course with a system that allows to treat people as early as possible. And we learned that from the stroke field, we have to come early, and I think this needs to be implemented in the spinal cord field as well. In the stroke yeah. field, there is this magic hour, you got to get your treatment within three or four hours, otherwise it's coming too late. My personal suspicion is we have the same situation after spinal cord injury, but the trials are not enrolling fast enough yet. This is something which is in under research. This is something where the future has to be to at least preserve 
what can be preserved, which has not been injured in the first hour of the injury yet, but which is going to succumb to injury. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, <clears throat> that's uh, really interesting, the, the work that he's doing, because I know... Um, I know a big part of the, um, not not the annoyance, but the frustration of spinal cord injury is one of the big factors is that it, there's so much um, ambiguity and so much uh, kind of vaguity in the whole prognosis. And it's, it's not very definite at all. And I, I know if you said he's working on ways to be able to, to be able to tell kind of how severe it will be. And, and that kind of brings me into my next point on how um, often the physicians in the initial consultations with doctors are they're often given a very grim prognosis and do you think even with the current um, uh, resources at hand that those are often kind of the low ball and do you think that's they should possibly um, kind of be given different prognosis and do you think that kind of affects the, the patient whether it's just mentally um, kind of depressing them or in other fashions yeah, I have to tell you, since I'm not treating patients, now this is important that I think about stating this explicitly, I am not in the position to comment what my colleagues do or don't do. If you want to have my personal opinion, I'm happy to volunteer that. <laughs> so I'm avoiding your question. I'm avoiding your question, yeah. And I, and I think I have to because I don't really know what is done out there in terms of what doctors tell their patients after injury. The reality is, as long as there is some anatomical continuity in the injured spinal cord, and you see it with imaging, and as long as we have some idea that there's possibly some spared tissue that could have some nerve fibers, we should be very cautious to call this this is it now and this is not to improve, never to improve because it is exactly from this spared tissue where functional recovery can at the present time is what we presently have come from. We do not know and we don't think there's a lot of regeneration in the spinal cord. At the present time, we don't have good means to measure that. But mm-hmm. uh, a, a person could initially present as complete But we know from the statistics and everything else, some have quite remarkable spontaneous recovery. And when I now add these um, stimulation strategies that I mentioned before, it could vary on rehabilitation, for instance, training, rehabilitation training. Some people may, after 30 sessions, suddenly get quite remarkable improvements and other situations, people may not see it until 80 or 90 sessions. This being said, it is very hard to predict who will and who will not see it. And when you look into some cost-providing systems like in the States, the insurances are not willing to pay that long. We are a little bit luckier in the Canadian system when the physicians strongly feel that the person should get more regimen. You can argue with this insurance system. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's done all the time is a different question, but it, uh, it is very hard to, at the 
present time to predict for sure whether somebody is really not going to recover further, uh, especially not uh, before 12 months. One, at 12 months, you have a rough idea, but even there has been some, sometimes some surprising improvement in the late stages. Certainly, in the first couple of weeks, one should be extremely optimistic and hope for the best and work hard. Certainly, the first three months, most of the recovery comes back, almost 80% in the first three months, but there is still improvement after three months, there is still improvement after six months, and in some people even later. So, uh, and don't forget, as you age with spinal cord injury, there is this age-related decline, which in the spinal cord injured population is accelerated. So therefore, we have to work against the age-related decline through activity, mm-hmm. through exercise, through yeah. proper diets. And this is, I think, what people have to keep in mind. It's, it's true for us, too. I'm an, I'm an older guy. And I ride my bicycle to work because I'm lucky and I'm able-bodied. But I try to emphasize, I try to exercise as much as I can in my situation. And many people that have paraplegia have arm function. And if the shoulder function is not too impaired by overuse or so, trying to do exercise, trying to be physically involved is a good thing and and keeping up those kind of spirits is absolutely vital to prevent this age-related decline which at this pop in this particular population as i said before is is accelerated mm-hmm. yeah um that's that's really interesting um thanks for thanks for your opinion um and you talked about uh how important it is to exercise and i know that's kind of not so much been a, a recent um, thought, but I know that recently there's been more uh, evidence in clinical results and kind of more trials on the effects of activity-based rehabilitation. And, and what are your thoughts on that and how that's kind of changed over the year? And, and do you think it's, it's becoming more prevalent now or do you think it's, it's always been there or? I think, I think the, the knowledge is to some extent there, but the, uh, it will surprise you if you ask different people what's the difference between activity and what's the difference between rehab training and what's the difference between exercise and activity and rehab training. It's actually quite muddled. Those, the, the language is, is mu- and what people understand behind it is actually quite muddled. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's rather surprising. So for, for the purpose of what you and me uh, as normal people on the street think, they think rehabilitation is, is practical practicing a certain movement, is practicing a certain activity for your daily living. That's yeah. what, what typically people understand. And what when they think, think about exercise, they think about something that gets your cardiovascular control up and you, you, you start to have to have a stronger respiration activity going on, burn more energy, and this is what we typically call exercise, correct? Are, yeah. we, are we on the same page? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And this being said, um, yes, it has become pretty clear that exercise is beneficial and it's not just beneficial for the movement you exercise, it's beneficial for other aspects of health and give, it's not that much different from the general population in, in principle. It's just that it's uh, in, in the specific population even more important, especially when, uh, when you consider that it's a self population. Yeah, and 
correct me if I'm wrong though, haven't isn't um kind of the 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 acute rehab um kind of activity based idea um isn't that being apply, applied more and more now than it has in the past and uh, well, it's encouraged yes it's encouraged and it's it is implied absolutely yes and it uh-huh. depends really on the time of injury and it, and it depends really of on the uh, on the person how effective it is in the end in terms of improving function but what it does is generally in terms of having benefits for the well-being of the person, for the muscle tone, for spasticity, for pain, and other other more or less tangible, but clearly very important side effects of spinal cord injury. Uh, those benefits can sometimes outweigh the actual exercise effect for a certain function that is trained. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, as I say, the, 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 the per definition, the the, the the term rehabilitation training versus exercise sometimes become blurred. Yeah, absolutely. This is why we have to make sure that we talk about the same thing here. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the terminology can be uh, confused, and then it's um, difficult to kind of understand. Um, and so, my last um, question for you is. What would your kind of with all your all your experience in the spinal cord injury field um, as a doctor and having seen so many people um, go through this injury? I have to I have to immediately tell you yes I'm an MD in the German system. Now I gave my nationality away, which is clear with my accent, but I am not a treating doctor in this system. I have to repeat this one more time. <laughs> so I'm. As a, I'm functioning here as a basic scientist who decided to work on mechanisms of neuroprotection and neural repair. I have a little episode later to tell you what we are, what one of our favorite uh, approaches is. But if you have time for that, other than that, yeah, I'm happy to listening to your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can um, share it, uh, share that now, and then in our in our animal work which is in rodents, we are cutting out all sugars and carbohydrates out of Mm -hmm. the diet after an injury. And lo and behold, these animals that go into a so-called ketosis are showing improved recovery of function. So grasping, for instance, for a pellet or using their forelimbs to explore their environment. Really? Grooming themselves. Yeah, exactly, really. And more than the more than the rodents that um, maintain uh, the diet? That's exactly right, on a controlled diet, yes, exactly. And that's quite wow. significant. Exactly, wow. And so here we are. And, of course, when we go and tell everybody, put people on ketogenic diet, they say, nobody wants to do that. So here we are doing intensive research, trying to understand how is this diet working? What are the actual parameters that could allow us to to explain it in a way that people would motivate it? But at the same time, can we do this diet in a different way? And at the moment, we are working on on ways where we can hopefully develop alternatives to a diet or supplementations to a diet, which would then allow people to go on a relaxed form of the very same and provide the benefits of ketogenic diet in a more supplement way and Uh improve outcome from injury. 
that, if it works, would be wonderful because yeah. it's a very natural process. We are, by our genome, we are made to suffer through f hunger and through periods of no food in which our body starts to switch to fat burning. And a ketogenic diet is a, is a diet of healthy fats. So think about nuts and olive oil and salads, yeah. right, and those kind of things. Yeah. And where we actually burn fats and turn them into ketone bodies, and, and these are a, a form of energy for our cells that is highly efficient and clean burning and preventing much of the oxidation byproducts which we normally see when we burn sugar. And when you listen to a cancer person, they are demonizing sugar as being the smoking for breast cancer. What smoking yeah. was for lung cancer is sugar for breast cancer, and probably other cancers too. And I, I joke about it in a similar way. I think uh, sugar is a very bad thing for injury of our nervous system. Despite the yeah. that the brain needs some sugar to think, but it's much less than we have been believing in the past, and we can fuel the brain very cleanly and efficiently with a large amount of products from burning good fats. And uh -huh. we have to learn more about it. We have to do more research how it exactly works, and in order to offer it in a more intelligent way. But in my mind, it's all, it's, it's it's very promising, and it's it's definitely worthwhile to put some effort in because. It's, it works through multiple effects, not just one effect, and it's a natural. Yeah, and that the evolution has given us. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I have to ask. I mean, what what you described, if if it's just partly true, is is pretty incredible, and um, I have to ask, kind of, at at what point do you um think about? And obviously, this information is out there, but to try to get it out to to more people who are who are um, recovering from spinal cord injuries, whether or not whether or not it works, um, if if it if there's this possibility. Yeah, I have I have uh, quite a few doctors from China who come here and do animal experiments with us on these particular diets, uh -huh. and they go back to China. Some of them are orthopedic surgeons, and they're seriously thinking of doing trials there. Mm -hmm. And they have done a feasibility study already. And I hope once we see effects in their trials, people would at least wake up here and say, well, I mean, we should do that here too and try and see whether that's true or not. Because yeah. people initially, initially tend to not believe what comes out of Chinese science simply because yeah. of the scandals we have seen from that country. But yeah. many of them are very sincere people, and many of them are extremely keen to improve the outcome for people with spinal cord injury. And yeah. given that they have so many patients over there, mm -hmm. they have the means to study this. Here, we barely have the means because we have very few people with spinal cord injury, thanks God, by comparison. And yes. we have, of course, thereby the challenge that we don't get enough people to do the actual uh, sufficient numbers to, uh, in order to 
get meaningful basis to conclude, yes, that's effective, we should give it to all or not. And this is something yeah. which hopefully will happen through this rather unusual way of rolling it out. <laughs> I am yeah. very interested in getting in, into the mechanism and trying to convince my colleagues that I have not kind of gone over to, into some flaky diet uh, like research in my older days, but it's extremely important to understand diet is what makes much of this society sick, be it yeah. diabetes 2, be it high blood pressure and other things often related and curable by diet. And this is something which we have to acknowledge and, and at the same time we, we can exploit those mechanisms in a smart way if you learn more about them and help ourselves in situations of inflammation and situations of injury. So uh, this being in a very cautious way, I'm, I'm hopeful it will one way or the other uh, lead us into a decent direction where we can actually make a difference for people with spinal cord injury. This is just one direction we do, but uh, just to, to throw it out. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear, hear the results if um, the Chinese doctors are able to do trials. Um, and so my, my last uh, question is, I'm conscious of the time, um, what, would you, uh, what would your recommendations be for recent spinal cord injury patients or, or past spinal cord injury patients and their families on both kind of um, getting, becoming aware of this research, but also just, just in general um, in, in maximizing their recovery and obviously um, keeping in mind that there are, their recoveries are all um, very unique to the person, but what would be some general comments you'd offer them? That's a very good question because I'm not treating any people. I typically do not give this type of advice, but seeing the field as a scientist, it's it's clearly uh, living a healthy diet, and I alluded somewhat to this before. And when you look at the World Health Organization to cut out sugars, I would certainly do that and live a very healthy diet in terms of vegetables and good nuts and oils and exercise, clearly exercise and a positive attitude that, first of all, during the first year, miracles are possible. And even in later years, things can happen and we may see through the electrical stimulation uh, approaches that people who thought there's nothing happening anymore do gain some function back or some general health feeling back, uh, be it blood pressure control, be it spasticity, be it other side effects of spinal cord injury. And so with more research and more activity in those directions, the, this quality of life can improve, so don't give up. And it's not necessarily locomotion that which is in the foreground for many people it's independence and it's, it's of course independence through hand function it's independence through other devices and those things are also developed engineers are doing miracles these days and it's 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 coming together it takes a lot of time it takes research dollars we have to convince our our politicians and also the families and people who know people with spinal cord injury that more money is necessary and research mm -hmm. is expensive and to support these type of activities 
and the progress is slow, yes, it's a complex problem, it's much more complicated than flying to the moon, but it is something where we will make progressively changes, even on the regeneration side, I see in the animals progressive changes, it will happen for the humans too, it's a small, slow, slow process, step by step, yes. and I would urge to A, not give up hope, be to do what we know already and implement what we know already in terms of a healthy lifestyle exercise and the rehab trainings we have. Unfortunately, people cannot get enough sometimes or it's inconvenient. And of course, uh, eventually, I hope with more research, we will be actually able to roll out small cures. But that is something which is very individual and that is something which depends on the type of injury again. And yeah. it's very difficult yeah. to make that as a very general statement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for those uh, suggestions. I know the, um, they're definitely appreciated. Um, thank you very much for for coming on and talking uh, with me today. It's it wonderful to hear your thoughts and hear about some of the, the fascinating research you guys are doing. So thanks for coming on. You are very welcome and all the best to you. Yeah, absolutely. That was the director of iCord, Dr. Wolfram Tetzlaff. Be sure to check out their website at www.icord.org and make sure to check back next Saturday. Have a great Christmas.